Good morning. This is the third sermon in a series called A Missionary Church. And we're exploring the riches of the church's 2,000 year history in order to find the practices that have consistently helped the church live as a faithful missionary community no matter what place, time, or culture she finds herself in. Six practices that the church has used to show up, to show up in the place where it's located, in its culture, and to faithfully, no matter what the culture is, to faithfully love God and love our neighbors. Last week, we saw the first of those six practices, that a missionary church embraces her context. Every age, every region and people group has its own set of assumptions and belief systems and shared experiences and institutions that give it a unique kind of flavor. Our time is no different. This culture we live in is not our culture. We're the missionaries in the culture. We don't own the culture. The culture isn't ours. And so we have to embrace this culture like missionaries. And so as missionaries, we embrace where God has placed us. And when we have that posture, the posture of embrace, it gives us the freedom to engage, not with fear or resentment, but with love. Now, that was the first practice of a missionary church. We embrace, we don't hate, we don't stiff arm, we embrace our context. The second practice that the church has used to sustain its missionary identity is it recovers its confession. We have to recover our confession. What exactly is it that we believe? What is our confession? What does it mean? We saw last week that Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. He said they are in Corinth and they are in Christ. And this is what a missionary church is. It's in two places. It embraces Christ and it embraces its place. Last week, we talked about embracing our place. What does it mean to be in Christ, to embrace Christ? What is our confession of faith? What does the church actually believe? What has it always believed across time and culture? What is the core belief in the midst of all the debates between the Anglicans and the Anabaptists? Yesterday was the birth of Anabaptism. Um, There is a secret baptism that occurred that kicked off the Anabaptist movement. And um, I love the Anabaptists, and I disagree with them. And there's some things they're very wrong on. Like they think that there's some things I'm wrong on. It's very confusing. (laughs) You know this though. You know that there's a difference between the beliefs in this church and the Baptist church and the Mennonite church and the Presbyterian and the Catholic and the Orthodox. But in all of our disagreements, there's a core. What is that core? What is that core that we all share, that all Christians in all times, in all places have held to be the essential of the faith. Well, the core essential Christian confession is this. We believe the gospel. We believe that the gospel is the story of love. Here it is. First of all, we believe in a God of love. We confess that at the center of all reality is the God of love. This is on the front of your worship guide. The most famous icon 
ever produced. Andre Rublev's icon of the Holy Trinity. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not know love does not know God, because God is love. The God that the Christian church believes in is a God of love, because it's a triune God. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwelling together in eternal love for all time. And this loving relationship, we confess, is the core of reality. Now, second, we believe in the creation of love, not just the God of love, but the creation of love, that this world is an overflow of God's love. That the moment of creation described at the beginning of the Bible, that moment is similar to the moment when a husband and wife turn to one another in the still of the night and love is made and a child is created. Why does a couple make a child out of their love? They bring a child into existence so that they can have someone to share their love with. A child is the overflow of a love between a husband and wife. And when it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, eternally existing in love, when that triune God of love created, it was a creation out of the overflow of love. So at the core of reality is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dancing ecstatically in love for one another. And their love, their dance is full of joy and fervor and passion and celebration. And they created the entire world, all that exists. They created it in order so that it could share in the love of the dance of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's not that God needed more dancers. God has no hunger that has to be filled. It's just that God's love is so full and so generous and so abundant. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit created everything that exists out of the joyous overflow of love. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit constantly and forever dancing in perfect bliss, perfect harmony, ecstatic joy created the whole universe, here's the key, to share in his love. Our confession is the God of love and a creation of love. It's kind of like when a child gets married and their parents invite as many friends as they can to the wedding. Why? Because we want everyone to share in the love. In creation, the love of God just bubbled over like a shaken up bottle of champagne. The love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is so full that the entire cosmos overflowed out of it. And we are invited to share in that life and in that love to join in the dance of God. Our job is to receive that love, to participate in it, and to extend it to the world. We were made for love. Third, we believe in the corruption of love. We understand that we've sinned, that we choose lesser loves and we've been exiled, exiled from our beloved and disordered in our own ability to love. We confess that we have sinned, rebelling against divine love in favor of loving ourselves, And this sin has broken and distorted every part of our humanity. We believe in the God of love, the creation of love, the corruption of love. And fourth, we believe in the pursuit of love. 
the coming of love. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, we see God pursuing Adam and Eve who are hiding, covered in shame and guilt. And we hear Yahweh, the God of love, crying out, where are you? That is the heart of a lover coming home to an empty house and a Dear John letter. That is the heart of a lover crying out for his beloved. In loving you, God desires deeply to be with you. He longs for you to join him in the love that is the dance of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Have you ever been loved with that kind of love that is not erotic, not even friendship? It is just sheer delight. Have you ever felt loved just by the look in someone's eye? Not a look of lust but a look of pure delight. I'm not, I'm not talking about infatuation, the first blush of romantic love. I'm talking about being looked at this way by someone who is way past the infatuation stage. They know. They know everything. Everything they know. They are under no illusion about your weakness. And what you see in their eye is still sheer delight. That's what Hosea saw when she looked in Gomer's eyes. That's what Hosea's story, our Old Testament passage, teaches us about God and his love. We believe in the pursuit of love. Have you ever seen in someone's eyes total love and sheer delight? Delight that you exist. It's good that you exist. I can't imagine a world without you existing. It's good for me that you exist. You delight me. You delight me just by existing and being alive. Some of you mothers know what I'm talking about. When you first held your child in your arms, that was the look in your eyes. Sheer delight that this child exists. That moment when you feel in the presence of someone that you can achieve anything. That was the look Hosea saw when she looked, Gomer saw when she looked into Hosea's eyes. And he was purchasing her back from sexual slavery. And this is what Zacchaeus in our gospel reading must have seen. Zacchaeus, the sinner in the tree. Jesus says, look at him. Can you just imagine what it had to have been? The crowds are crowding around. They want to see Jesus. They're swarming the road. Jesus stops in the midst of the crowds. He scans the onlookers. He looks up into a tree. He sees a man perched on a branch so that he could see Jesus. And Jesus knows who he is. He knows that he's a chief tax collector, that he was hated by everyone. And so Jesus says to him, I must stay at your house today. Jesus wasn't looking for shelter. This was the pursuit of love. He was looking for friendship. In Jesus' day, staying at someone's house meant you were friends with that person, that you valued them, you cared for them, you enjoyed being with them. Only friends stayed at each other's houses. Enemies wouldn't even cross the threshold of their enemy's house. It was God's love for the world that drove the Father to send the Son. If you look on the front of your worship guide, one of the reasons this is the most amazing icon of all time is it's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit portrayed, each head inclined toward the other, none toward himself. And they are together 
beholding in the midst of them the Lamb of God, the, tri- the Trinity before all time, knowing in love that the Father would send the Son to be the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. We confess that God, because he loved us, he promised that he would come into this world and return us to himself and reorder our loves. And he has done this in Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus both models for us and secures for us by his own effectual work, a restoration of our ability to love God and to keep these two commandments that he gives us to love God and to love our neighbor. We confess that in the incarnation of Jesus, love pursued us. In the teaching of Jesus, love was given a voice. In the ministry of Jesus, love served us. In the crucifixion of Jesus, love bore our suffering. In the resurrection of Jesus, love secured our life. In the ascension of Jesus, love governs us now with wisdom. And in the Pentecost of Jesus, sending his spirit, love equips us for the works ahead. And we believe in the return of Jesus that love will win. That love will triumph. And that's the fifth part of our confession. Not only do we believe in the God of love and the creation of love and the corruption of love and the pursuit of love, we believe in the triumph of love. We believe that at Jesus' return, God will be our groom and we will be his bride and we will dwell together beyond time in a world made new that he will transform this world into a city of love where we can dwell together for all time. Here is what the church has always believed. It's the Apostles' Creed. It's the Nicene Creed. It's all there. Trinity, incarnation, sin, the Holy Spirit, the church, Christ's return. This is what we confess. But I want you to notice that I framed it in the story of the Bible. The evangelical church in America has divorced its doctrine from the story of the Bible. And as a result, we do some weird things with our creed. What we need to recover is that our confession is anchored in a theology of love, that the Bible starts with God, the Trinity, who exists forever and dwells forever in love, that our confession is anchored in love and oriented to love. It is a theology of love, the love of God, the love of God for the world, the love of God for us and our neighbor, and the triumph of love over all things. And when we hold that confession, it will nurture us and sustain us as a missionary church, no matter what age we live in. What we need is to recover the story of the Bible as the context of the creed. You see, for many people today, confessions and creeds are viewed as dangerous. We all know that one of the tragedies of the church throughout the centuries is that there have been Christians who have weaponized our beliefs. Christians and churches who've exploited our belief. We all know little stories of how the community of the Prince of Peace has been clearly manifest in the little fiefdoms of the time. And one of the effects of this history of violence has been the conviction, very strong in our time, that confessions of faith are a source of conflict. They're a source of personal hatred 
and public harm. That if you have strong particular beliefs that are exclusive, that you are the problem. And that makes a lot of us confused about how we're supposed to hold our beliefs. And so in the evangelical church in America, some Christians have been like, yeah, I don't want to do anything that's going to harm other people. So I'm going to hold my creed, my confession as personal comfort. It's about me being forgiven of my sins. It's about me finding strength for my life. It's about me finding hope in the life to come. And our confession becomes fundamentally about personal comfort and consolation. Other Christians, they're like, on that. They resent this cultural accusation. They feel oppressed by the thought police, by the politically correct people. And so they take the creed and they turn it outward and they use it for conflict. They begin to think of Christianity, not in terms of personal comfort, but as cultural war, cultural contest. It, it's like we turn our cluster of beliefs into a battle plan for where the battle is in our culture, into these culture war skirmishes. The beliefs supply us the motivation and the tools for this wide-ranging struggle over who gets to run our society. And we hold the line on these beliefs. And I understand both of these moves. I've swung between them in my own life. But if the personal comfort version of Christian belief drives us inward, the cultural contest version drives us outward in conflict, what other way can we hold our confession? It's when we put the confession in the context of the story of the Bible that it's got a different anchor and a different orientation. Remember, the story of the Bible does not start in a garden. That's chapter two. That's Disney, the deep desire to get back to a garden to some pristine moment. The story of the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 2. It starts with this, in the beginning, God. It starts in community. And it doesn't end in a city. It ends in a wedding. The Bible begins in community and ends at a wedding where all things are made new, a destination wedding. The whole point of the Bible is the bride and the groom. The Bible doesn't start in a little place where we can play and have our little fun and end in some, it begins in the community of love, the father, the son, and the spirit. And it ends with the inclusion of humanity in that community of love through a wedding. Now, when we separate the creed, our confession from the story of the Bible, from the God of love, the creation of love, the corruption of love, the pursuit of love and the triumph of love, when we separate them out, we fall prey to fear. And frightened people are not good lovers. Missionaries are lovers. You find a missionary is not a lover and it's a bad missionary. You can't be a missionary to that which you do not love. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 on your own at some point this week and think about all the ways fear keeps you from doing love. Love is patient. Fear is not patient, it's impatient. I'm afraid if you don't change now, you might not ever change. Love is kind. Fear doesn't open me up to kindness. It, it makes me coerce and control. The list just goes on and on. The outward movement of love is held back by fear. 
If you're fearful about your neighbor, if you're fearful about the world and the context in which you live, then you don't have the capacity to love because love is self-giving. But a lot of us are sitting in a moment of fear, afraid of the outside world. So we, we want to love and we wish we could love our neighbor well, but the reality is we're intimidated by our neighbor and we're not sure that the Christian faith has anything to offer our neighbor that our neighbor would find helpful. But the essential movement of love is downward and outward. It's the word became flesh and lived among us. And the notion that you would want to escape something that's inflicting pain on someone else because you want to protect yourself, that's the antithesis of love. Moving out of Babylon is the antithesis of love. The movement of love is downward and outward. Let's not give up on believing that the hard work of love is what will work, that it will bear fruit. The only way to be a missionary church in this age is we have to learn to love God and love neighbor with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And it would be a lot easier if somebody would come along and give us another solution. But that really is the only solution. To be a missionary church, we need to embrace our context and then move forward in love where we remember who we are. We remember what it is that we're called to do in this world. We take on the missionary mentality that says, my neighbors actually matter more than self-preservation. Love casts out fear. Because love and fear can't coexist. The bigger reality in your life drives out the other. And I'm convicted about this. If you were part of the lectures in the fall that I did on, the, on how we as a church can embody God's great plan for sexuality and gender, you saw me grappling with this. The leaders of our church right now are meeting on Wednesday nights to grapple with how do we love the LGBTQ community in our church and in our city. I'm convicted about this. I think about it in my own life. How am I going to practice love better? How am I going to be a person who knows how to bring love to my neighbors, my actual neighbors, not my preferred neighbors, not the neighbor on the other side of town that's easy to be with, but the one next to me, the one I didn't pick, the one that I just lived near. How am I going to be self-giving rather than self-preserving? And look, this is a process and it's going to take time for us, but we should be encouraged. We should be encouraged because we have small groups. Small groups are this amazing place where we can imagine together what it looks like and we can tell our stories about how we try to love and times we don't try to love and what it looks like to actually love. What is the actual shape of love and how can we do this and how, how can we embody and encourage one another in actual acts of love toward our neighbor? The love of God is the central story of the Bible. And our confession is that we have this triune community of love and that Jesus' own coming was a result of God's love for the world. And his purpose is to make us lovers, lovers of God and lovers of neighbor. And so as we move forward through the rest of this sermon series, as we continue through these practices, we're going to find that this is the basis this is the foundation for how a missionary church operates in the world. And, and look, if you've got practices that are feeding fear and feeding resistance and hatred and disgust for, your, for people in this country, people in this city, quit those practices. Stop feeding fear. 
Whichever is bigger will cast out the other. We need these practices where we're constantly reminded of love. Where we get to do, Calvin called the table, the kiss of Christ. Practices where we engage Christ and meet Christ and help one another become a missionary community. A community whose basic confession is anchored in love and oriented to love. Let's pray.